Well, I hope your summer is off to a great start. Um, it's hard to believe it's June. I know, it, you know, it's funny. As you get older, you just think eventually you'll understand how time passes, but it doesn't work that way. It just seems like, is it really June already? Um, and the, the start of June signals, uh, for many of you, the start of a, a new season. Uh, it begins this life without school, right? Super excited about that. Uh, it also signals the end of Hebrews, which I know some of you are thinking, will we ever get through this book, right? Uh, if you've been following along with this, you know that what Tim read this morning begins the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. We're just two weeks away from finishing up this amazing journey uh, through this incredible book. And it's important for us to remember that even though we call it a book or refer to it as a book, that it's thought that this was actually get first given as a sermon to the early followers of Jesus as the church was just beginning and the sermon was written down and circulated among the churches. And somewhere along the way, it was broken into chapters. And when we come to a, two, a new chapter, it's easy for us to treat it like it's a new chapter in a book that we might read today where it's starting a whole new set of ideas or a whole new uh, sort of conversation, if you will to move on to a new topic. But let's remember that this, the scripture that we have was written in another language and there were no chapter breaks. There were no verses. The work of the translators was to change not only the language, but to make it more readable for us, to make it easier for us to digest it. In the process, it was broken into chapters. It was broken into verses for which I'm very thankful. But anytime we come to a new chapter, it's important for us to remember that it's just not a, a whole new thought beginning. This was a sermon that it was intended to be given in its totality. So we have to think, what came before this? Or we might miss the intent of the preacher. We might miss the intent of the person giving this message. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, let me encourage you, let's turn to Hebrews, the end of chapter 12. If you've not already opened it up. As we saw last Sunday, if you were here this last Sunday, you, we were reminded, that the preacher reminded the congregation that once again, to, he told them that God is big and powerful and in some ways terrifying, but that they don't have to fear because he's actually made them part of a new kingdom and us part of a new kingdom. For Jesus has brought in this new covenant, a new way for God to interact with his people. And this kingdom that he's now initiated is, cannot be shaken. It cannot be overtaken. And so we have no reason to fear. And after he explains this to him, he says, therefore. You see it there in chapter 12 and verse 28. Now, anytime we see this word in the scripture, we ought to be curious. There's a little phrase that I like to, it goes through my head is, what's the therefore, therefore? And it ought to make us want to look back and understand why is the author or the preacher in this case saying the word therefore? It's usually connected, connecting something that already has been said. So let's read on. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
end of chapter, and now we start chapter 13. But is there a connection to what we heard read this morning by Tim to this verse and to the things that came before it? Well, here's what I was thinking about it this week. Try to imagine yourself as a member of this congregation in the early church. You're sitting here in this message, and the preacher says something like this, and I will just admit right up front, this is a loose, loose translation. The preacher says something like this, this to the congregation. Remember, you're part of a new kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. Now, be thankful about that, but don't forget, God is big and powerful, and he could take you out if he wanted to. <laughs> so make sure you worship the way he wants to be worshiped. I know that's a loose translation, but hang with me. If, if you're sitting there and the preacher's saying this to you, what would you be thinking? Well, I can tell you the last thing that you would want the preacher to do is to move on to a new topic. I mean, I think I'd be, excuse me, um, could you tell me a little bit more about how he wants to be worshipped? Well, here's the good news. I believe this question is the question the preacher sets out to answer as we begin chapter 13. And as we explore these first six verses of the 13th chapter, I think this one thing will be perfectly clear, that God wants more than 75 minutes a week. Now, for those of you that have been around Christ community for a while, this shouldn't be news to you, because we've worked hard to teach this truth, that all of life is to be an act of worship. Last weekend, my dad, who's 91, came to visit us here in Kansas City. Uh, it was great to have him uh, with us. Uh, it's so fun. I just recognize the trips are, uh, it's less likely for him to come again every time he's here with us. And so it was great to have my dad with us. We went and attended the celebration at the station uh, down at Union Station on Sunday night before Memorial Day. Um, the Kansas City Symphony, it was just fantastic. It, it was so great to be present. My dad was one of the many soldiers who came through Kansas City on his way home from World War II uh, and spent six hours in a layover uh, in Union Station. We walked through it, and he's t telling me about the, that, those six hours and the places that he spent time and where the USO station was that he went and got a cup of coffee. And uh, it was just great to recount that and have those memories with him. And on Sunday, we attended at our Leewood campus um, a service together. And just as the service was beginning, Dad leaned over to me. The music was, had started playing, and Dad leaned over to me, and he said, what do you all mean by corporate worship? I, I don't know where he was reading it, if it may have been on the sheet that he had, or some maybe saw it on the door as he was walking in, but that's a good question, right? What do we mean by corporate worship? And if you've seen those words or heard us articulate those words, maybe you've been wondering the same thing. What do they mean by corporate worship? But, you know, the, this music, the music is going on, and so pa and pastors aren't supposed to talk during the service. Uh, so I just quickly leaned over to him and said, Dad, it's, it, what we're saying is that it's when we all gather together. And I just kind of let it pass at that. And as I prepared the message this week, I, I reflected back to that moment with my dad and realized that it's connected to this text. Because you see, calling these 75 minutes that we spend together on Sunday morning corporate worship is our attempt to say that what we do on Sunday morning is a type of worship. It's part of worship. It's not the sum total of our worship. 
Unfortunately, this word worship has been hijacked. And oftentimes we only use it to describe what happens on Sunday morning, or even more specifically, we might even use it to just describe the time of music that happens on Sunday morning. And you know, we might say to someone after service, wasn't worship great today? And you're really just talking, you know, you're not talking about Nathan, uh, you're talking about Patrick, right? I mean, that's, that's what you're really saying at that point. Wasn't worship great this morning? So what does acceptable worship look like? If it's not that, what is it? I mean, is it just really good music or singing real loud or attending church every Sunday? Or does acceptable worship include more? Now, this struggle to understand worship has existed from the beginning of time, from the moment that sin entered the world. You see, in the early days, God's people thought that worship was all about the sacrifices they made, the rituals that they did, the rules that they followed. But time and time and time again, God said to them, I, worship is not about a particular type of service or offering or time or place. And throughout this sermon, throughout the months that we've spent together, we've seen the preacher say again and again that Jesus purchased our whole lives not just the religious part. Jesus wasn't just added to a list of gods. He wants our all. He is everything. God doesn't want our goats or our sheep or our grain. He wants you, the whole of you, all of you. Worship involves all of us. And in these first Six verses, the preacher begins to illustrate this to the congregation by giving five aspects to acceptable worship. Now, for you list makers here this morning, you're going to love this because it's a list actually embedded in these five verses. Look with me at verse one. Let brotherly love continue. In four words that are simple to understand but difficult to execute, I believe the preacher is telling us to love your new family. He's telling us that we're to love other Christians. And in a common language of the early church, he refers to it as brotherly love. You see, when you join a church, you actually become part of a new kind of family. And you are to love the people in the church that you're a part of. It doesn't mean that we're not to love all Christians, right? I mean, certainly it's no less than that. But it's much more. Because, see, loving all Christians is very abstract. But loving the Christian that you're seated next to or another person in this room that maybe you're intentionally not seated next to, that's much more real and much more difficult. Because the closer I am to you and you to me, the more we begin to know that we aren't so likable, much less lovable. Which is why our relationships to one another, I think, are described as a new family. This brotherly aspect. And not just friends. I mean, friends come and go. You can choose your friends, right? But as we all know, right, we all know this, you can't choose your family. 
Now, just imagine if, you're, if the instruction here would be to love your Christian friends, and one of your Christian friends begins to annoy you or reveals some part of their brokenness that's not very attractive to you, and you kind of want to get away from that. Now, just imagine that. What happens if this instruction is to love your Christian friends? Will you just put that person now in another category? Well, they're not really my friend. They're just sort of an acquaintance. I'm no longer commanded to love them, right? Because they're not really one of my friends. But we are called into a family, a local church family with broken and sinful people, just like me and just like you. And the preacher establishes this, this love of our brother, our love of our sister, as the beginning point, the foundation, if you will, for our worship. We must love our new family. I think Jesus recognized this, this kind of love was difficult and going to be rare. As a matter of fact, he told his disciples early on, he said, it's the love that you have for one another in your new family that's going to distinguish you from the other types of people, the other groups that exist. You'll, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another, was what he said. But unfortunately, we rarely stand out as something different. And we often treat people in the church as just another, other members of another social club, a place where we can build friendships or do networking. And we, when we encounter relational tension or relational difficulty, which is bound to happen, by the way, in any group of people filled with broken and sinful people like us. When that happens, we depart and look for a, a new group of people that might be easier for us to love. We call this church hopping. And, and I know I might have just stepped on some of your toes. I, I think I heard a nervous chuckle out there. Um, but to make you feel better, we've all done it, right? And some of you might he be here this morning as guests looking for a new church. And I admit, I've thought about it. But the fact that I'm employed here kind of makes it a little more complicated. Uh, <laughs> so I'm kind of stuck with you. Now, to be clear, I do think there are good reasons to leave a church. That's for another sermon. However, it's been my experience that church hopping is most often connected to relational conflict to a failure to love as Jesus has called us to love in both directions. And I believe that the preacher is laying the foundation of a life of worship. We must begin with a love for our new family, our lo a love for our church family. They will know we're his followers by our love. So let me just ask and dig in just a moment and just ask you, do you love the people of this church Are you working to get to know others? I remember when Sharon and I first arrived at Christ Community. Um, I, I am pretty quiet in, by my personality, and, and I was really struggling with a move here to Kansas City, and we landed into the life of Christ Community. And to be honest, I just wasn't up for a bunch of new relationships, even though I know, knew no one here in Kansas City. I had my work, and that was enough. And, you know, it's like we came to church on Sunday morning, and 
Um, I was, you know, a congregation member who kind of stood in the back, didn't really want to chat with anyone. I remember driving home one day and Sharon just asked me, are you ever going to talk to anyone? And it was that moment for me, it's like, you know, I do need the church. I need these people. This is my family. And so let me just ask, have you, are you just standing in the back, just getting by with what you can? Or are you eagerly pursuing to know and to love the people of this church? I'm sure there are difficulties in relational tension that's in this room right now at this moment. How are you being active at resolving that? Students here, there's nothing more terrifying, I think, to be a student who's coming into a church brand new. And so have you reached out to be a friend of somebody new who you're sitting next to on Sunday morning? And just ask their name. And become a friend to them. This is one of the things I must admit that I love about Christ's community. As I've gotten to know people, I truly believe brotherly love is seen in so many ways. But let me urge you on, just like the preacher did in that day, to let brotherly love continue. The preacher doesn't stop here. He can... adds a practical aspect to this family love. Look with me at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby, or in so doing, or because of this, some have entertained angels unawares. Now, it's important for us to know a little bit about the context here in order to understand what is being said, because as we've all been taught, we shouldn't talk to strangers, right? Uh, But that's not really what's happening here, because in this day, uh, at the time that this sermon was given, To stay overnight in a hotel or an inn was both expensive and, let's just put put it this way, those places had a lot of sexual and sinful temptations available. And so as a result, Christians who were traveling on business or refugees who were coming into a new community uh, were often in need of a place to stay. And the church, the people of the church, became the place for that to happen. And obviously, some are denying this sort of hospitality, this sort of way of entertaining strangers, if you will. And given this broader context, I think it's clear that the, the preacher is using this language of stranger to communicate that they should be opening their home to these Christians, the Christians that they don't know. In other words, I think that he's telling them to practice radical hospitality, Now, I chose the word radical here because I think what he's asking them to do is way out of their comfort zones. And let's face it, we struggle to invite over the people that we like, right? And when we do invite friends over, we sort of can begin to keep a list or keep score. I've invited them over five times and they haven't invited me over yet. I'm done. And this only reveals that our so-called hospitality is actually just a way for us to get something in return. Not truly a way for us to give. But the preacher tells them to show hospitality without keeping score or expecting anything in return. As a matter of fact, do it for people you don't even know. Now, I know for some of you here, you struggle with the idea of letting people in your home because you've convinced yourself in some sort of... um, twisted way that your home is not big enough, it's not clean enough, or you're not a good enough cook. I mean, you're just not a good host, 
you think. And when we do this, we continue on neglecting our worship of hospitality, missing out on the joy of entertaining angels without even knowing it. So let me just speak it clearly to you this morning. Hospitality is a matter of the heart. It's not your skill. Yes, there are some that are gifted at hospitality, but the question is, are you hospitable? Do you love others? And if you do, you will invite them in. I love the way one of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, stated this. This is years and years ago, but it just rings so true today. He says, if you have a hospitable disposition, you own the entire treasure chest of hospitality, even if you possess only a single coin. But if you are a hater of humanity or a hater of strangers, even if you are vested with every material possession, the house for you is cramped by the presence of guests. So let me just ask, do we extend love and care to those who might not be able to repay us? When was the last time you did that? Is it possible that our hospitality is actually just another form of networking or getting something in return? Do you have a hospitable disposition? And if not, what might it be telling you about a work that God wants to do in your life? How might God be calling us to change? The preacher continues to push in further to what this love looks like. Look with me at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. I think the preacher here is reminding them that there are those who are fellow followers of Jesus who are in prison or being mistreated because of their faith and that we as followers of Jesus are called to care for the mistreated. This word remember that's used here that's translated as remember carries a very strong idea. It's more than just an um, intellectual or a memory of your mind, uh, just remembering the person. It's to remember and to take action. And the logic that the preacher lays out is really powerful and simple here, is it to remember them because they are part of your body. In other words, if you hit your, your big toe on a door jam as you're walking into the restroom in the dark of the night, you can't ignore that toe, right? Because it's suffering. I mean, you're, you're suffering as well. And when those in our family suffer, we should suffer as well. But the truth is, we're selfish people who often just don't care. Or maybe I should put it this way. I'm a selfish person who often just doesn't care. A few years back, I had knee replacement surgery. Um, I still remember the moment when I woke up. I was scared to death of how painful this would be. And I still remember waking up in the hospital and feeling amazingly good. And thinking to myself, if these tubes weren't connected to me, I'm, I might just get up and leave right now. You know, this, I'm just, I feel great. But what I realized was that they had given me a nerve block. 
which meant that I could not feel anything in this part of my leg. And because of that, there was no pain. But at that moment, my knee was suffering greatly. And I would quickly realize that about 24 hours later when the nerve block wore off. And it wasn't until I experienced the pain in my leg that I cared about it or desired to do anything about it, to try to make it better. Unfortunately for many of us in our lives, our busy lives, our pursuit of happiness, it's created sort of a self-induced nerve block. And we've cut ourselves off from our brothers and sisters who are suffering or who are being mistreated. We want to care, but we just don't because we don't feel it, we don't see it for a variety of reasons. I mean, do you know someone who's suffering for their faith? Are you remembering them? Are you praying for them? One person I think of and uh, pray for often is uh, a follower of Jesus in Iran named Farshid. He's been here with us at Christ Community. Uh, he is in prison for his faith, has been for several years. But even with Farshid, I keep his picture nearby, I try to remember him, but even with him, it's easy for me to hear of his suffering and mistreatment and think to myself, well, it, it's not really my problem. But the preacher is reminding us that it is, that we should care for the mistreated, that we should actively reach out and take action for the mistreated. Next, the preacher tells his congregation about another way to worship, and it's in our marriages. Look with me at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I believe here that the preacher is reminding us or encouraging us to honor the institution of marriage. Let's face it, the concept of marriage is being challenged greatly today. And I'm guessing that there's some of you here this morning who think that marriage was, it's just a social construct. It's man, man's idea. It's sort of an antiquated social norm. And therefore, you've wondered if it's kind of run its course. Does it need to be changed or maybe eliminated altogether? Well, some things never change, and the preacher delivering these words to his congregation is experiencing the same reality in the Greco-Roman world in which this is being written. You see, some at this time felt that marriage was, um, it was antiquated. Being faithful to one partner in marriage was too restrictive, and that men ought to be allowed to have mistresses to satisfy their sexual desires. As sort of a reaction to this, many Christians began to believe that marriage itself was bad and that one ought to remain sexually pure through their entire life and not be married. But the preacher breaks through both of these and in a paraphrase says, marriage is good. Sex is good in marriage. You see, what we think about marriage matters. 
We can worship in our marriages. We can worship in our sex lives. But it must begin with how we view marriage, how we think about marriage. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, one that I would recommend to you if you want to dive into this topic a bit more, he spoke of it this way. He says, marriage is God's idea. It's also certainly a human institution, and it reflects the character of the particular human culture in which it is embedded. But the concept and roots of human marriage are in God's own action. And therefore, what the Bible says about God's design for marriage is crucial. And the preacher reveals here that God does have a design. And that sex is to be experienced in and only in marriage. This means when we have sex as God designed it, we're worshiping. Write that one down. Nathan would have said it differently, uh, but uh, with a bit more crudeness. Um, I actually thought about thinking through what he would say, but I decided I don't want to go there. And when we honor marriage as God's creation, for those of you that aren't married, how you think about marriage is an act of worship. When we think about it as something valued and to be, to be protected, we are worshiping. And when we devalue marriage, when we think it's antiquated and not needed, and when we seek to satisfy our own sexual desires in whatever way that we want, we are actually vandalizing God's creation of marriage. And the preacher gives a strong warning in this area. And as much as I'd like to pass over it, I, I can't. He says that God will judge those who are outside of his design for sexuality. Now, we know this as Christ followers, don't we? That we all deserve judgment. And because of this, we strive to live as he designed us to live in every area of our life and to call others to do the same. And it's not our place to judge. That task is left to God and God alone. So let me just ask you this morning, do you believe that marriage is important? Is an institution to be valued and protected? Is it God's design or is it some antiquated, out-of-date social construct? Are we in any way failing to honor the institution of marriage, either intentionally or unintentionally? Are we building up our marriage and the marriages around us? Or are we in some way tearing down and vandalizing what God intended as good? Finally, the preacher doesn't let us stop in the bedroom, and he goes for the pocketbook. Look with me at verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, we are to strive to be content. And what robs us of contentment? I mean, I'm guessing many of you are here this morning with this sense of gnawing, a gnawing sense of a lack of contentment. What, what creates that? preacher says here, it's the love of money. It's wanting more. It's needing more. And in case you haven't figured this out, 
as a person who has some gray hairs on their head, let me just say, you'll never be able to get enough. Ever. If you are loving money, you will never be able to get enough. God will not compete with our money either. We will not be content. As a, as a result, we will not truly worship if we are in love with money. But in order for us to worship, we must begin by realizing that our money is not our own. It is given to us as a gift. And we are simply stewards of what has been given to us. And when we begin from this perspective, we, we recognize that everything we do with what God has given us is an act of generosity. We're simply giving his resources away in the ways that we believe he was wanting us to use them. I think we frequently hear this message loud and clear from Jesus. He's always linking money and faith. I mean, you don't want, do you know what I'm talking about? Jesus would often answer the question, how do I inherit eternal life, or how do I follow you, or how do I worship you with a response about money? Well, just see all your money right there, give it away. So let me ask you this morning, does money have a grip on our lives? Are we in love with our money and find ourselves worrying about if we'll have enough, or if we have enough, and longing to have more? How's your giving? Are you being, being faithful to God's design to give to this new family, your local church? How does your giving look in other areas in this community? In what ways is the evidence of generosity present in your life? Or do you find yourself paralyzed and not giving it all because you're just scared that you might not have enough? Now, anytime we encounter a list like this in Scripture, we could begin to think that the Christian life is all about keeping the right rules or living in the right way, right? And, and if you're here this morning hearing the, this, it either excites you or deflates you. Some of you here this morning are rule keepers, and you get excited by a list like this. But this is a potential problem for you because you can begin to try to stri- you can begin to strive to save yourself to be good enough for God to love you and accept you. But even though you're pretty good at keeping the rules, you know that you're not perfect. And you're haunted by this question, can I really be good enough? Now, there are some of you in here that are free spirits. And you come to a list like this and you're thinking, forget it. I mean, you checked out a long time ago. When I got to number three, that was all you could handle. I mean, I, there's no way I can do this, so why even try? Now, no matter which of those places you find yourself this morning, you're just where God wants you. Because true and better worship can't begin until we realize that we can't do it, that we need help. You see, the gospel offers a different way. 
a way that does not depend on our acceptable worship, but on Jesus who came to offer his life as an acceptable sacrifice to make it possible for imperfect worshipers just like you and me to have any hope with a God who is a consuming fire. And it's his presence, both past and present, that makes all the difference. I love the way the preacher finishes this little section. Look at the end of verse 5 and end of verse 6. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? True and better worship begins when we realize we need help. Until then, we're just going to give God 75 minutes on Sunday. But he wants so much more. He wants every part of us.